Hi, my name is Carly and welcome to Arise's Sermon of the Week. We hope that you experience God as you listen to this message and that you find practical ways to be the hands and feet of Jesus within your community. So let's open up our spiritual ears as we listen to this message. And welcome, welcome, welcome. If you're new to our church, my name is Brent. I get the privilege of being the lead pastor here. And I hope we continue to experience revival together. Come on, y'all. This Pray 813 thing, I think, is stirring up something in a lot of people that we're not satisfied with the way things have always been, but there's a desperate hunger for more. Tommy Tenney once wrote and said to me personally that you become a God chaser when your hunger exceeds your grasp. I pray we are never satisfied with the hunger of God in our life. We're always wanting more, always desperate for more. In fact, hunger for God is one of those unique things that the more you have, the more hungry you get. The more you eat, the hungrier you get. You actually never fully get satisfied. Hey, um, so we started the Pray 813 campaign that today is day seven of. I hope you've been joining us morning and evening to pray together. I hope you've been fasting alongside of us. It goes for a few more days up until Wednesday night. But I want to give you a brief schedule of things to come if you want revival. Tonight at six o'clock is Restoration Room. Many of you have been to Restoration Room before. It's a night of just seeking God's face with no agenda other than seeking God's face. From six to eight, Pastor Jason and a couple others will just lead some worship songs and we're just going to go after God. Usually towards the end of that, we pray for people for healings and miraculous things like that, but it's just a night to soak in God's presence. But Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday night, because Restoration Room is normal, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, we're doing something that's not normal, and we're calling it Revival Nights. So let me give you a quick update of what that looks like, practically speaking. Um, Most of the time when we talk about revival, we as Americans get an image in our head that an evangelist comes to town, he shouts a lot, gets us all excited, we walk out the doors going, ah, right, that's, that's, that's what it is. I want to take us a little deeper than that during revival nights. That revival really isn't about a person coming into town other than the Holy Spirit. The only person that needs to show up to have revival is the Holy Spirit in you. And so Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday night, we are going to have a time of worship. And there are some people that are selected by me, kind of prophetic type people, that they are to come into the room and not have an agenda, not come in thinking I'm going to say this or do this, or that's human nature that we do that, but to come in with a clean slate. And as we worship the Lord, that these people are going to be ones that say, God, what are you saying right now in this moment for this church? And they're going to come up and uh, different times during the night. And as the Lord speaks to them with, if, and when the Lord speaks to them, come up and kind of do transitionary moments where they'll share for two minutes, three minutes of what God is saying in this moment and then lead in prayer and then continue to flow out of that. You know, sometimes we say this kind of language. We say, I want to make sure I make room for God. I'm not interested in making room for God. I'm interested in being in the room with God. I don't want God to be a slice of the pie. I'm ready to give it all come with humility and repentance and watch true revival break forth when we actually give him control and see what he does in our life. So that's Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday at 7 p.m. If it gets overcrowded in here, I don't know what to expect. If it does, uh, you know, because of social distancing and this and that, and because of the style of service, you're going to have the opportunity to roam Main Street. We got overflow in the upper room. We got overflow in Kids Church, all kinds of other places as well, because there's not a sermon, so nobody sits down and listens. It's a very different atmosphere. God's going to move. It's going to be powerful. You're going to want to be here. Speaking of God moving, hey, last week in our South Shore service, um, down on the South Shore campus, we had one person healed of Parkinson's last week. Come on, y'all. Come on. And, and I love that. I love that. I love that. But what if, what if that's just, like, like, like what if that's just a little thing? Because on God's radar, that's not a big thing. You know that. On our radar, that's a big thing. What if God wants to do so much more in and through us that that's just a little taste of the future? What if when God breaks out, AIDS is healed and cancer is healed like that? What if the hospital is not the only place curing people? What if the house of God, once again, is curing people from diseases because of God's presence being so thick? And when the kingdom of God comes, all of a sudden sickness and disease has to leave. When we sing your kingdom come as we were just doing a moment ago, we're not just singing something that sounds good or sounds pretty. When we actually truly invite the lordship, the king of the domain, when we invite the lordship over this house and his presence comes in such a way, everything that's not of his domain has to leave. That's why some people leave in the moment. 
That's a whole other message. Somebody's casting out demons and people leave and they wonder why. Anyway, I'm going to shut up and get to my message. Okay. They say diamonds are a girl's best friend. So I went into Ada's um, jewelry cabinet and pulled out one of her diamonds to bring and show you this morning. Y'all are like, I'm never giving at that church again, man. That pastor's way overpaid. Yeah, you know it's fake. <laughs> but they say diamonds are a girl's best friend. Diamonds are funny in that they come from the Greek word Adonimus, meaning unconquerable or invincible. The Greek goddess Adamus or god Adamus is where that word comes from, and it's the god of conquest. Diamonds start, this is what's unique about them, they start as something so very ordinary. Diamonds start as carbon. Some people would refer to it as coal. It's not exactly the same, but it's very similar. Diamonds start as carbon. There's nothing special about carbon. It's all over the world. There's nothing special about it. Nobody, nobody brings a piece of carbon to your spouse and says, will you marry me? But they do with diamonds. But diamonds are transformed into something rare and beautiful and sought after through incredible pressure and extreme heat. In fact, the heat, they say, is 2,700 degrees Fahrenheit it takes to form a diamond. Somebody said, that's hot. The pressure, if you were to add it up, is the weight of over 4,000 grown men standing on your foot at one time. Somebody said, that'll hurt. <laughs> this, this carbon is formed in inner secret places below the earth's crust where oftentimes you never know it's there. That's why you have to mine it out. Have you realized that God wants to shape us and form us through pressure and through heat. Oftentimes, like a diamond under the earth's crust, also in isolation. Oftentimes, the greatest moments of foundational forming in your life come when you are not around everybody else. You don't have the encouragement of the church to bless you and love you and all that. You're in isolation and you're in the heat and you're under the pressure. And I wonder, what if we need to change the way we view pain and pressure? You know, where there is no pressure, there is no growth. My generation, we used to say it this way, no pain, no gain. Anybody remember that? Nobody ever says that anymore now. I started a doctorate this week. If I were in the Navy, they would call it hell week, where everything in the world kind of collapsed against me in the midst of starting a doctorate. And I'm not joking when I said, before I even really typed the first sentence of my first paper, I was ready to quit. Like you're supposed to get through a class before you quit. At least get through a few papers. I had even written the first sentence, and I'm like, I can't do this. I'm sick of this. Why? Because the pressure is pretty intense. The weight is pretty heavy. But if I stick to that weight, if I stick to that pressure, as I go through it, it will get easier to the point that on the other side, I could become something better than what I am when I started. Earning a doctorate is not about getting a doctor before your name. It's about getting more knowledge and understanding for God to use through you. See, one of the reasons for our current American problems is that we've tried to protect people from pressure and pain. We've had so much of prosperity in our life that it actually becomes abnormal when you have pressure and when you have pain. When, when life gets difficult, we, we look around going, what's going on? And what that does is it creates people that are mentally and emotionally weak. Because you haven't been through anything, nothing has formed you and hardened you into something tougher. Therefore, the slightest thing, all of a sudden, you're jumpy and hard and emotionally we're weak and, and, and mentally we're weak. And now we're part of a culture that teaches us that if you really want to be a good parent, you better make sure you protect your child from any difficulty. Don't let your child ever go through anything. Make sure that whatever you do, don't mark their paper red with the wrong answers because that could offend them and hurt their feelings. Make sure that, that we give ribbons to every kid instead of a trophy to one kid. Make sure we don't hurt anybody's feelings. Well, nobody wants to hurt each other's feelings. That's why we all fall into this. At the exact same time, what we do is create a generation that's mentally and emotionally weak because they haven't had people tell them that they're not good enough or, or you're not going to win this. Everybody wins. You're always the greatest. Well, what happens when life hits you and you find out you're not? because you've never been formed. <laughs> so we're told instead, fill life with pleasure and the prosperity of our world. So now what's happening is when pain and pressure comes and we're, being, we're seeing that this prosperity is not normal within the scope of the world or the history of the world, it's something that's abnormal that we've had in the United States alone for, or in the West in a few places for a very short period of time. But the actual normality is pressure on your life. And as that 
happens and pressure comes against us, we think something's wrong because we got so used to pressure not being there. Life was relatively easy, and I don't mean it's easy in the grand sense of things, but I mean compared to third world countries, life was easy. Compared to most other countries, life was easy. You drove to church this morning in an air-conditioned automobile, most of you. Life was easy. And so when life comes, we think, I shouldn't be experiencing this. When, when hardship, pressure comes, I'm not supposed to be experiencing this. I'm a Christian. And we end up having a crisis of faith because somebody told us that being a Christian meant prosperity. And if I'm just a follower of Jesus, then everything good is going to happen in my life. So when something doesn't happen good, when you lose your job, when your spouse leaves you all of a sudden, when, when, when somebody makes fun of you or laughs at you because of what you believe, when something happens that isn't good, we end up in a faith crisis, running to God going, take me out of this pressure, but maybe God's going, I actually want you in the middle of the pressure because I want to make you something. I want to turn you into something. And we run out of the very thing that God's trying to put us into sometimes. Listen, there is no Christian formation, there is no Christian discipleship that doesn't involve pressure. It's the formation. It presses us into the image of God. And pressure purifies our character. So, with that being said, right now let's step into Revelation chapter 2. We've been in this series on Revelation. In the last week we looked at the first church of Revelation. Today we're going to look at the second one. Revelation chapter 2, verse 8 through 11. The church of Smyrna. It says, To the angel of the church of Smyrna write. By the way, the church of Smyrna, this will come back up again later, so it is a quiz, is in Izmar, Turkey. So in the church of, to the angel of the church of Smyrna, right? These are the words of him who was first and last, who died and came to life again. Pause with me. I know some people love it. Some people hate it when I do this. But let me just give you some cultural context that they will understand that you won't. He says, he says, uh, these are the words of him who was first and last. In that area of Smyrna, uh, they were actually very proud of the fact that they were the very first colony of Rome in that area, and very proud of it, and they referred to themselves as the first city. We're the first city of Rome. It was a very prideful thing. They, they loved being called the first city because they colonized first, and Jesus is saying to them, I know that, but I am the first, and I am the last. On top of that, they were also a city that... Uh, used as an emblem of their city, like if you would have flags and things today. The emblem of the city was the emblem of the great bird, the phoenix. You know, the great mythical bird that went into the desert and died and then came out of the ashes of its own death to fly again. And that was their image because the city of Smyrna was founded about 1,000 B.C. A few hundred years into it, the city was completely destroyed and disappeared. And then hundreds of years later, it came back to life. And they were very proud of that. And they called themselves the city that was dead but lives again. Jesus says, <laughs> I am the one who died and came back to life again. Just for the record, it's not your city, it's all about me. <laughs> He's preaching a message in a context they understand that we could lose today. All right, with that being said, let's keep going. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will, be hurt, or will not be hurt by this, by the, at all by the second death. I feel in my spirit even writing this this week and, and preparing for this Sunday morning. This is not just a message for the church of Smyrna. This is a message for the church at Arise. You need to hear this message. This is important. In some ways, the last few messages are leading up to part of this message this morning. So lean in. Him who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says this morning. And in my traditional sense, if, you have, if you're taking notes, there's three main points. We'll actually be, uh, I think, putting out worship guides again next week so you can physically take notes if you want at that point. But number one would be this. You can be poor, yet rich. You can be poor, yet rich. Verse 9 said, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. <laughs> so according to history, Smyrna was a very uh, prosperous city. Yet the Christians there were very poor. What's that all about? You see, the Christians of Smyrna knew poverty because they would be, would be mistreated 
and marginalized and boycotted and fired from jobs because they were Christians, not given jobs because they were Christians. They would be pushed out of the, of the economic prosperity of the city simply because they were believers in Jesus. This was not an unusual phenomenon of the early church either. I know that when you follow Jesus, he's supposed to take care of everything for you. But especially in the early church, in a lot of places, that was the way it was. They were outcasts of society, and so people would not give them jobs. And they would fire them from the jobs that they had oftentimes. Unless we think that's something only from church history, as soon as you leave the United States of America, you still find that often today. Many of my Indian folks in this room today and those from other countries will recognize this, that still to this day, people are losing their jobs or not getting the jobs or being mistreated or abused because they're a believer. We've talked about this in years past here, but, but, but we started a small church or helped plant a small church in a little village of Nepal. And the church was, they needed so much help because the village was, you know, not real big, a few hundred people. But a couple people had gotten saved out of that village. And it's an agrarian culture where they all help each other and they assist each other in their, in their efforts to harvest and reap and all this. And, and, and in the middle of that, these couple people become Christians and not, not Buddhist anymore, or not Hindu anymore, sorry. And when that happens, they're outcast from society and you cannot survive like that. You can't survive. So we were stepping in trying to help them. In that story, it's quite funny because one of the people that were there owned a mill. There were three mills in that little village, but nobody wanted to go to his mill because he was a Christian. Until the other two mills miraculously broke somehow. And there was only one mill to go to. <laughs> but my point is you see that over, over, all over the place. There's a man in our church for years named Rahani Geim. He was a professor at Southeastern University. He used to send money back to his home country all the time. It's Eritrea in Africa. And he would send money back to his home country because he had friends and family desperately trying to survive, but nobody would allow them to get a job. Nobody would allow them to get an advance up. People would be let go from their jobs because they were believers. It actually cost them something. And that's the church of Smyrna. They refused to conform, and convictions won't let you conform. When you really have convictions in your spirit about things, when you really got a backbone, it doesn't allow you to conform to things outside of your convictions. One of the problems with many of us is that we don't have convictions, and we become wishy-washy based on the culture, and we conform to everything else. We've lost convictions. We need more convictions today. And this kind of economic persecution is believed to be the main reason that the church of Smyrna was poor. And they were poor because they refused to offer worship to Caesar, which made them outcasts. We'll talk more about that in just a second. So we're ostracized and, and poor and not able to work in the economic side of their city, even though the city was prosperous. So it makes me wonder. Jesus said, I know you're poor, but you're rich. What? Like, you know, was, was, Jesus called them rich. Was he confused? Was there like an error in translation with John? Like John heard rich, but he meant to hear poor. What's going on with Jesus right there? I can only tell you this, that it ultimately matters more what God says about you than even what you think about yourself. There's only one truth, and it's not always your opinion of yourself. And so God seems to know something that we don't know. And that is this, that they were poor in finances, but boy, they were rich in character. They were poor in money, but rich in character. And it's interesting that God considers character more valuable than money. This is a funny thing. As we watch the American culture quickly shift and the patterns of this cultural moment inside of our United States shift quickly. How if you were to go back a few years ago, character really mattered. Now, money is all that matters. Have we noticed that? Have you seen that? That people don't talk about character anymore. They don't talk about character building. They don't talk about who you are. They talk about how you can make money. There's nothing wrong with making money. I'm certainly not against money. I hope you make lots and lots and lots of money and tithe on it. Come on, y'all. <laughs> nothing wrong with making money. I'm just saying, what happened to character? Because you can have money and not have character, which means you can actually be rich and be poor. The same way you can have character and not money, you can actually be poor but be rich. If, let, me, let me just be very clear. And Frank, if you are wealthy with no character, you are poor. But we've lost that. We've lost that. And there's a lot of reasons why. As, as, as it used to be that we were such a, an integrated society, meaning that we knew our neighbors and we needed our neighbors to help us. And, and they had house keys to our house and, and all this. And we were truly connected as a community. Well, you cared about their character. 
Who they were inside of their house mattered, right? Because you were so close. Over the course of time, all of a sudden now we become isolated within our culture and we only have to put up a front for people to see. Nobody has to see behind the scenes. And so what you produce becomes more important than who you are. And when that happens, we've lost so much. We can actually be rich at the same time we're poor. Can I tell you that America is a rich country that is poor? We are rich in finances and poor in character. So this persecution made them rich in character. It made them like diamonds. And maybe as followers of Jesus Christ, we need to change the way we view pain and pressure. We need to change the way we even see this current situation. Maybe God doesn't want to rescue us out of the crisis. Maybe, maybe he puts us in the crisis to build our character. Who told you life was going to be easy when you follow Christ? Because it's the very crises that we desperately want out of that actually shape us and form us into something so beautiful. That make us into diamonds that take coal or, or carbon and make it into diamonds. Maybe this crisis, maybe what you're walking through, maybe your loss of job, maybe your, your issue, your thing. Maybe God's not going to rescue out of it. Because if you rescued out of it, you could be rich in money and poor in character. There's this really crazy, crazy verse in James chapter 1. I don't like it. You probably don't like it. There's some Bible. I, can I be honest enough to say there's some verses I don't like? They're not reasonable. Some of the things Jesus said is not reasonable. James chapter 1, verse 2 and 2 through 4 says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters. That's all of us. Whenever somebody gives you an ice cream cone and tells you how great you are. If it said that, I wouldn't have an issue. I'm good with that. I can consider that joy. I love ice cream. Come on, y'all. Consider your joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials huh, of many kinds. That's not just one trial. You just say consider it joy when you face one trial. But when they're coming at you all over the place, like it's coming out this church in Smyrna, consider it pure joy because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Huh. So like diamonds, crisis builds our character. And God will use it for his good. It may not feel good, but it can be used for good. And pressure, pressure teaches us who we really are. I don't know if you know this. This is, why, this is why teenagers, a lot of times, and young adults, you don't know who you are yet because you haven't actually faced anything in life yet. Crisis actually teaches us who we are. Right, so I remember years, for years I was a youth pastor and our teenagers, you know, we'd preach these powerful messages and our teenagers would be like, I would die for Jesus! And I'm like, bro, you're not even living for Jesus, man. Like, start there. Like, you know, I'm glad you would die for him, but here's the truth. I don't know if I would die for Jesus because I've never been in a place that I had to make that choice. I would hope I would. I hope I would. But I don't know I would because I've never been in that place. I don't know if I, if I were in the place in my company where I had to compromise my character in order to get the promotion, to fudge the numbers or to, or to do something that, that I felt like was against, against what I should be doing. I would hope that I wouldn't do that. But I've never been in a place to do it. And until I'm in that place of pressure to go, I could go this way or this way. I could, I could do what's against my character and keep my job that I've worked on all these years or I could stay within my character and do the right thing and lose my job and start over. It sounds all well and good when we're shouting amen and praise the Lord until you're in the moment of pressure and you find out who you really are. Pressure does that. Pressure does that. It teaches us. It shows us who we really are. And so when you have a generation that grows up without very much pressure, they grow up not having any idea who they actually are. And so you talk really big. I die for Jesus, but they don't live very well. Anyway, that's another message for another time. So in Smyrna's case, there was this pressure not only in finances, but also from the Jews in the local synagogue that we just read about as well, where there's this large and hostile community of Jews, and they're pushing these Christians out of the synagogue. For the record, Christianity was never supposed to come out of Judaism. It was supposed to be the natural outbirth of Judaism. But in this moment, the people were required to sacrifice or to burn incense to uh, emperor, the emperor Domitian. At that point, 
the Jews were exempt from that because the Jews would never do it. And they knew that if they tried to make the Jews, it would just cause another revolt. And it wasn't worth it. The Jews were never going to do that. So as long as you were associated with the synagogue, you were considered a Jew and a practicing Jew, you didn't have to do it. But what happens when these followers of Jesus get kicked out of the synagogue so they're no longer considered Jewish, so to speak, by the nation? They're also not going to do it, but they're not exempt from it. And so it causes this incredible persecution against the Christians. And so these people that they loved and grew up with and, and probably worshipped with in the synagogue as they become Christians, become excommunicated from them. So not only is there a financial pressure on them, not only is there a pressure from the government, there's also a cultural pressure to conform and come back to the way that you know should be true. And all this is going on, which leads me to my second point. You can be persecuted yet victorious. You can be persecuted yet victorious. The last part of that verse says, be faithful even to the point of death and I will give you life as your victor's crown. And if you haven't caught on to this yet, just please note, Jesus didn't promise an escape from all trouble and hardship. I know somebody might have told you that and I know that Jesus loves you and I know that he's your heavenly father, but even a good earthly father is not going to keep his child out of everything that's pressure. He needs it. It's good. I'm not always going to come running. Sometimes I need to see himself pick himself up in that moment. It's good for him. And it's the same thing. Victory is not always getting out of persecution. Sometimes victory is enduring persecution. We're not promised a bed of roses and smooth sailing in Christianity. Now, with that being said, the last three weeks have all led to this moment, which will continue on as we continue talking, and you'll see glimpses of this throughout. And this is important. Lean in. Pay attention to this next point. Some people won't like it. Some people won't believe me. But hear me. Persecution is coming to us in America, to true believers in America. Some people won't like this, depending on your whatever background, you don't, whatever. I'm just telling you, and by the way, some people are like, he watches too much news. For the record, I don't watch the news, like literally ever. Like some people say they don't watch the news, but they watch it here. Like I literally never watch the news. This doesn't come from the news. This comes from God. Persecution is coming. Let me tell you why. Because as the moral majority has switched inside of the United States where people look down on people that have morals, then they become the one that shoots arrows at those people instead of the arrows going the other way, which they have for a long time, which is unfortunate. And as soon as you tell somebody, especially when it comes to sexuality, as soon as you tell somebody that this is wrong or I don't believe in this, you will start facing persecution. Very much like the church of Smyrna. It may not be somebody beating you immediately, but it very well may be you losing your job or not getting the job because you don't fit into an ideology they want you to fit into. It very well may, may be friends or family members who are excommunicating you that you love dearly. It could very well be, uh, you know, uh, bosses and people talking bad about you or friends at school talking bad about you because you have a belief that doesn't fit into their beliefs. That is very much on the horizon and very close. So we have to prepare ourselves for this. Years ago, I was... Um, uh, uh, laying down and reading my Bible years, years ago. And uh, in fact, to tell you how many years ago it was, I was in a waterbed. Anybody remember those? Yes. I got married. My, my wife made me get rid of it. Um, <laughs> but I was in a waterbed because those were cool, man. I, I'd still sleep in a waterbed if I could. Anyway, go back to the 80s. Um, so I'm laying in my bed. I'm reading the Bible and God spoke this. This is one of the first big profound moments in my Christian walk. I was still a relatively new believer and God, God spoke this to me. I was reading in Matthew 14, and I'm reading about Herod, and, and essentially, uh, John the Baptist had looked at Herod, who is sleeping with his sister-in-law, totally Jerry Springer stuff, right? He's having an affair with his sister-in-law, essentially, and John the Baptist says, hey, bro, you can't be doing that. Don't be doing that, right? Well, that seems pretty normal. Like, that's a good thing to say. You shouldn't be sleeping with your sister-in-law, okay? Makes sense. On top of that, a whole other part of the message, they're daughter, which would have been his niece, ends up dancing before him and pleasing him so much, which probably meant she didn't have a lot on. That's his niece. Pedophilia. Anyway, so John the Baptist is calling this thing out. Read verse three and four. Now Herod had arrested John and bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, for John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have your wife. And I read that and God spoke to me all those years ago and said, there's coming a time where people will persecute you, try to kill you, so to speak. People will persecute you because you're calling something sin all over again. 
Now, at that time period, that was kind of foreign. That was 20, over 20 years ago. That was a little foreign back then. It wasn't quite so common. Look at us now. You call something wrong that somebody else doesn't agree with, and you will be excommunicated. You will be persecuted in one fashion or another. That's the world that we're living in. And so in the middle of that, we're called to share truth no matter the reaction. We're truth in love. Ezekiel chapter 2 is a powerful chapter. And, and repeatedly in chapter 2, God speaks to Ezekiel. And he says, you preach what I say no matter the reaction of the people. You share this message no matter what they do. They're stubborn and hard-headed. They may not repent. But you share the message. That's the same thing God's calling us to do today. It doesn't matter if everybody gets saved. Nobody gets saved. Some people hear it. Some people don't hear it. He who has ears will hear you just share it. Now you share it with love and courtesy and politeness because for the record, it's okay to be hated because you are a follower of Christ. It's not okay to be hated because you're a jerk. <laughs> Can we be real for a second? Can we just talk real talk? Because there are some people, you all know those people, some people in your world that they claim that they're being persecuted because of Christianity. The truth is they're being persecuted because they're just obnoxious. They're being a jerk. Okay, that's not Christianity. You can say the right thing in the wrong heart, and that's not Christianity. That's not following Christ. It's not about speaking truth. It's speaking truth in love. If you can't say it in love, shut up. And for the record, this is where you should all applause. For the record, it actually hurts everybody else when you do that because all Christians get a bad name. And they think all of us are like that. No, we're not like that. You can speak truth, but speak it in love. That's probably going to take a little more moments to sit down and think about it. <laughs> but speak it in love. Here's the thing. We're in a post-Christian America now. The world has flipped. We're not in Kansas anymore, Toto. The world has flipped. It's not the same as it was that you may have grown up in, depending on your age. And therefore, it's going to look different in the way we see things happen around us. However, with that said, there's a glorious reward for those who endure persecution. That's what we're being taught right here. That these people were to look past their, their, their troubles and see the reward on the other side. And also take note, in the middle of this persecution, Jesus is very clear that the one who is persecuting them, in this case, the one throwing them in jail, is the devil. It's not actually the warden. It's not actually the officer. Listen, your enemy is not a politician. It's not a teacher. It's not a manager. It's not a cousin. It's not whoever you might think it is. It's the devil. Which, by the way, when you get a proper understanding of that, is how you start treating people with love and respect because they're not your enemy. Your enemy is the devil. <laughs> so we got to treat people the right way. And so Jesus begins kind of sharing this idea. Listen, I know what you're going through. I know what it costs you to follow me. I know the pain is real. I know the rejection of your family and friends is real. I know they passed you over for the promotion simply because you wouldn't go to the place with them that they wanted to go. I know that when you were in Vegas and they were all doing their thing and you wouldn't go with them, it actually cost you because the ones that went there all bonded and they did their thing. I know that, 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 that your roommate kicked you out. I know that your spouse mocks your faith and calls you a fool. I know that those people at school will laugh at you from time to time. Those people at work will murmur behind your back and call you a goody two-shoes. And I know that's going on, but I want to say that Jesus understands. And part of his humanity as he came to the earth was not simply to die. It was also so that he could live in a body like you and I lived so that he could experience what you and I experience. He identified with you. Lest we forget that Jesus was hated and rejected. He didn't win popularity contests. Jesus was arrested, falsely accused, tried in a most horrible way, beaten, and then killed. And we're supposed to be a part of that. There's this thing that we've said in the church for centuries that we don't talk about much anymore because it's not popular and it's not cool and we don't like it, especially in America. It's called the fellowship of his suffering. That if I'm going to fellowship in his glory, that's what we love to talk about, I've also got to fellowship in his suffering. When I have to, not that you need to run towards suffering in some way, but to fellowship in his suffering. See, you're, you're a lot like Christ when you suffer. And that's the promise amidst the pressure is that there's a blessing that comes on the other side of it. Listen to what Paul wrote to the church of Philippi in Philippians 3, 10 and 11. 
I want you to know, I want to know Christ. Yes, I want to know the power of his resurrection. That's where the American church is. That's where most of our, us are. Yeah, I want to know the power of the resurrection, the power of God showing up, signs and wonders, miracles. Yeah. And we pause. But he didn't pause. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participate in his sufferings. I don't want to participate in his sufferings. I just want to participate in his resurrection. Now, let me be clear. I'm not saying you run out looking for sufferings to participate in. But when you suffer, you also get to participate in the resurrection, which is what he's saying. Becoming like him in his death, so and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. See, when you know Christ in his persecution, then you can also know him in his resurrection a whole lot better. We could say this in a million different ways, but I'm just going to say it really clear because I ain't got time. People say, where's the power of God out in the American church? Why is the power of God working in all these other places? Why is the church of China growing leaps and bounds and seeing miracles and signs and wonders all over the place? Because China's under persecution. And when they're persecuted, they understand the power of his resurrection better than we will. So while we don't like persecution, don't run from it because it's in the persecution that we actually find the power oftentimes. Oh, y'all ain't getting this. If you die with him, you'll also live with him. Point three, and I'm wrapping up. You can be dead, yet alive. You can be dead, yet alive. This is a weird verse, especially if you didn't grow up around Christian stuff. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. What's the second death? What's the second? We know a second. We know of one death. Right, you know, your grandfather, your whatever, you know, he passed away and he died. That's the death. But what's the second death? Well, that's the first death. The second death is eternal separation from God. Nobody wants to talk about hell anymore. And I understand why. I don't like talking about hell. But the very fact is, hell is a real place. Hell is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Eternal torment. Eternal lake of fire. And it is very much real, despite what some History Channel show wanted to tell you. And I'm not saying you should get saved to get out of hell, to get out of hell, but I am telling you, I want to be away from hell, so I'm going to stay saved. <laughs> so the second death, well, what is hell? If, if God is all things good, and hell is the absence of God, therefore hell is all things bad. I don't know exactly what that means, but I know it ain't good, because heaven is good. So I wonder... Where, if you died today, where would you be tomorrow? <laughs> hell is a real place. And you actually get to choose your second death location before your first death. You know, it's, it's like flying somewhere and you got the place that you land, the, the hub, and you go somewhere else. You get to choose where you're going to end up, but you got to choose it before you buy the ticket. And while you're living and breathing in this life, you get to choose heaven in the second death, not hell. So we're not done yet. I, I want to share a story before we end in a moment. But there's some of you in this room that you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Let me be very clear. If you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you will go to hell. I don't enjoy saying that. I wish it were not the truth. But it is. It is. And I'm not trying to scare you, but sometimes we need to be awakened to these things. We need to be reminded of these things. So if you're here and you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, I want you to have it before you leave. This is the day you say, God, I'm giving you my life or I'm recommitting my life to you. I'm just, I, I want more and more and more. God, I just, I need you all over again. I, you don't need to bow your head or close your eyes or any of that stuff right now. If that's you, come on, have some boldness. Be a man, be a woman. Just stick your hand up. I want to pray with you real fast. I'm not going to call you up or anything like that, but just, yeah, yeah, yeah. Come on, around this room, say, Jesus, I need you. I surrender my life completely to you. I give you all of me. From this day forward, I will follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Come on. Yeah. Yeah. So he says, the end of verse 10, be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you your life as the victor's crowns. Diamonds are in crowns. It's like, I'll make you into something beautiful. I'll give you something beautiful. I'll turn you into something beautiful. 
It's interesting to me that of all the churches of Revelation, the seven churches of Revelation, the only one that is still in existence today is the church of Smyrna in Izmar, Turkey. They got about 500 believers scattered between about a dozen churches, according to reports. And they've survived centuries of Roman and Muslim persecution. How did they survive all that? How, why are they the only ones that survived? Let me tell you something. Diamonds are one of the hardest things on our planet. And once you are formed into the diamond that God wants to form you in, you can have hell or high water come against you. You can have persecution and difficulty. All things can go wrong. It can rain on your parade. It can lightning on your parade. And you're going, I ain't moving because you become hard, but not hard in a bad way, hard in a beautiful way. Hard in a way that says, I am who I am in Christ. And that ain't budging. In this verse, this letter to the church started out just like all the other letters to the church. It said, to the angel of the church of Smyrna. Now, you know from a couple weeks ago, we taught you that the angel was who? I'm glad Jackie's paying attention. The angel was who? The pastor. The pastor. That's traditional view. It was the pastor. Which then leads into this conversation. Because some churches, we don't know who the pastor was. Others, we do. We actually know who the pastor of Smyrna was. You might have heard his name. He's actually kind of famous in church history. His name was Polycarp. Polycarp was an apostle of John himself, a disciple, I mean, of John himself is the way I should have said it. And John had taken this young Polycarp in his late teens, early 20s, and raised him up like going to seminary nowadays and trained him up in the way of God and taught him. And, and sure enough, when the church of Smyrna needed a pastor, he said, all right, Polycarp, go get him, man. You go pastor that church. I've got your back. In fact, Polycarp to this day is referred to as the bishop of Smyrna most of the time. So he gets sent there. And he pastored that church for over 60 years through trouble and hardship and persecution and hate, heat, and pressure that's forming Polycarp into something beautiful. 80, over, over, over 60-something years until he's eventually 86 years old. And there's another persecution that breaks out under Marcus Aurelius against the church. And they go looking for the Christians in Smyrna. And according to church history, he's sold out by some people in the synagogue to tell him where he is. So they go to Polycarp's house. They come to arrest him. And as they get to his house, Polycarp says, I will go with you willingly, but can I make you something to eat first? You look hungry. Yeah, we ain't, we ain't usually like that. That's not usually American Christianity. That's, that's, that's called love. So can I make you something to eat first? So he made them food. The, the, the very Roman people that came to pick him up to kill him, he said, let me make you lunch. So he made him a BLT and some fries. <laughs> I don't know. But he made him lunch. And then he said, hey, do you mind if I spend a few moments praying? Because I know I'm going to my death. Do you mind if I spend a few moments praying first? And according to church history, he went into another room. And they said he prayed so fervently and passionately that all, the guard, all of the guards actually felt guilty that they were the ones that had to arrest him. And they were going, I wish somebody else would have arrested him. I don't want to be this guy. And they take Polycarp and start taking him to the theater where he would be set on fire alive. And again, according to church histories, he's on the way there. The captain of the guards, the captain of the ones who's leading him out, is trying to get him to change his mind. At this point, he's 86 years old. He's an old man. That is very old by that time period. That's like being 100 years old nowadays. Old man. And they feel a little sorry for him. And they saw the way he prayed. And they saw the way he cared for them. And so they're trying to bargain with him. And they said, listen, if you will just say, Polycarp, if you will just say Caesar is God, Caesar is Lord, if you'll just say Caesar is Lord, like we will wipe this thing clean. I'll take you back home. You can do your thing. We won't even make you burn the incense. Just say Caesar is Lord and I'll make this go away. And probably the most famous quote from any martyr in history was his quote back. They say that he said this, 86 years have I served him and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? All he had to do was compromise a little bit. All he had to do was say a few words. I mean, Caesar is Lord. Three words. One of them's really little. Does it even count? He could have mumbled it. Caesar is Lord. He could have rid it in the dirt or something like that. But he refused 
compromise. Why? Because he had been made through the heat and the pressure and the crisis of life. By the way, it takes a long time to form a diamond. Years. He had been in that heat and that pressure until the place that everybody else thought he was poor, but he was rich. Everybody else thought he was nothing, but he was somebody, baby. And they brought him into the theater. According to church history, they put him up on a stake to burn him alive and they started to light the kindling around his, his feet and it wouldn't start at first. It would only barely get going. And so the overseer got really irritated with it and went up to Polycarp and stabbed him in the side. And the story goes that the blood actually ran out of him so quickly that it put out the fire that was beginning to get started. Then they ran over and they started a fire again and through the stab wound and the fire itself, he was burnt alive and died for his faith. That's the church of Smyrna. That's the story that's not in Revelation 2. It's just in church history. That's the church of Smyrna. Probably a good, I don't know, 60 years after John. That's a diamond. That's something that's both beautiful and hard. That's the beauty that's formed under the fire of persecution and pressure. That's what it means to be both rich and poor. That's what it means to be victorious while you're under persecution. That's what it means to have life, not death. Because we are all going to breathe our last in this life. But the second death is the one that matters the most. And can I tell you, church, God is calling us back to revival. He's calling us back to pure faith. He's calling us back to diamond faith. And will we become a diamond or will we remain carbon? Will we stay as a lump of coal, something that's everywhere and carbon that's everywhere, something that's not special at all? Or will we allow the crisis and persecution and heat to turn us into something special? That is the question. They say the more pressure on the diamond, the more pure it becomes. I would say the more pressure on the believer, the more more pure we become. How will you handle this moment in history? So I can't speak for everybody in this room. And Aiden and I, don't don't come ask us, we're not sharing any deals. We've, We've been through a lot this week. It's been crazy. And the funny thing was I'd already ordered these. And I can't speak for everybody else. But you know why I made it through my first class of my doctorate? Because I'm looking at a diamond going, I'm going to become something. I'm not going to quit because it's hard. I'm not going to step out because it's persecuting or it feels hard or difficult. I'm going to be formed into something. And so my challenge for you is like me. When you walk out this morning, one per family, we're going to give you a diamond. What church is giving away diamonds this morning? Don't tell people they're fake. Just say, Arise Gateway Diamonds. They don't know. <laughs> just, just go on social media. But my church gave me this diamond. Don't just, just don't give it to your fiance as a wedding. It's not. So when you walk out this morning, we want to give you guys a diamond. And this is my charge for you. I want you to put it in a place where you'll see it. Because it might not be right now. It might be in a month. It might be in six months. It might be in six years. But you're going to walk through some persecution. It's coming. You're going to walk through some hardship. There are people that are not going to like you, not because you're a jerk, but because you're a believer. There are people that are not going to like you because you follow Jesus. That's going to cause a divide in the church. As the church is divided, it becomes more pure, and it becomes more powerful, and it becomes a diamond. So put this in a place so that when you start walking through that moment, you can look over and go, I'm going to become this. I'm going to let the pressure form me, the heat form me into something that's beautiful, something that's rare, something that people around the world attempt to acquire, something that's valuable in the midst of a world of coal and carbon. Would you stand up with me around the room? I'm going to pray over you. Pastor Jason's going to lead us in one more short worship song. And as he does, I want you to have some introspection for a few moments. I want you to look into yourself. We're, we are very poor in the church about focusing on everybody else with everything. They need to hear this message and they need to do this. And yeah, yeah. we got to get rid of that and we got to start looking at ourselves. 
We've heard so many preachers talk about you, 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 that we started using that same language and we stopped actually focusing on our own selves. And so for a moment, I want to lead us in prayer and then Pastor Jason's going to lead us in a song and I just want us to worship the Lord and I want us to focus inward. How are we handling difficulties? Are we becoming a diamond or are we letting the difficulty form us into something even uglier? Jesus, God, I don't want, I don't want persecution. I don't want pressure. It's not fun. It's not good. But at the same time, I know it can be used for good. I know that you can take that momentum, that, that kinetic energy like judo, and, judo, judo and, and move it, motion it, so that it actually get used for my good. I know that you can take the difficulty things, the difficult things in our culture, and use them to press us, to form us, to make us pure and holy. So God, while I don't like it, I refuse to back up from it. God, while I would never pray for persecution, I refuse to step away from the persecution because I know that the greater the pressure, the more pure I will become. The more sin will be ripped out of me, the more unrighteousness will be, will be squeezed out of my nature, and the more pressure that's put on me, the more I will become like Jesus who ultimately said, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. In the same way, God, I I don't want my will in this. I think you have a great cosmic plan that I can't comprehend. So I have my will, but I say, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And Lord, I pray that around this room, that as pressure hits us, that there would be people that are formed into diamonds for you. People that are formed into something priceless and rare. Something beautiful that others would search out. In the midst of a world that's so polluted, let us stand out as righteous. Because we will not run from pressure. We will stand in the pressure and allow it to form us into what you want us to be. Make us diamonds. Jesus' name. Come on, let's worship the Lord for just a moment. Hey guys, wasn't that such an amazing message? If you enjoyed it, be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel and to follow our podcast. Also, make sure to share this with your friends on social media and use the hashtag MyAriseChurch. For more information or to give to this ministry, go to MyAriseChurch.com.